If you have a bulletin, there's some notes you can follow along. If you have a Bible, take it out. Find the book of Genesis. This is our third week in a series called Little G Gods. We're talking about idolatry. The first week was just a broad introduction, a broad overview to the issue of idolatry, to the possibility that maybe we have little g-gods in our lives. Even though we've never bowed down to statues, idolatry still may be an issue for us. Last week, we sort of focused in, uh, drilled down deep on the possibility that children could be a little g-god in our lives. And this morning, we're going to talk about how love can be a little g-god in our lives. Before we do that, let me just remind you of some of the things we've talked about over the last couple of weeks. Many times in our lives, we allow good things to become ultimate things. An idol doesn't have to be a bad thing. It can be a good thing. In fact, it can be something that God's blessed you with. But when you take that good thing and you let it become an ultimate thing, then everything's out of whack. An idol can be anyone or anything that you allow to become more important in your life than God. And one of the things that we've talked about when we think about idols and we think about idolatry and we think about little g-gods, we've said little g-gods will always disappoint you, they will never deliver, and they will always bring destruction into your life. They promise you the world, and then some. But they always disappoint, they never deliver, and they always destroy. You can bet whatever you want to bet that the, the issue, the little g-god that we're talking about this morning is an issue in our country. That love, particularly romantic love, uh, love in a, a husband or a wife, in a boyfriend or a girlfriend, is an issue that we deal with. Now, Before we jump in, how many of you guys are cool enough to be Bob Dylan fans? I need to show a hand so I know who my real friends at church are. Eh, Not very many of you, so the select few. Look, I don't care what you say about Bob Dylan. He's one of the greatest vocalists of all time. And some of you say, well, he sounds lousy. I'm just telling you, he could hit the notes if he wanted to. It takes a lot of work to sound the way he sounds. He is a rare talent. And... uh, In 1979, he had an album come out called Slow Train Coming, and there's a song on that album. We've talked about this song before. It's called You Gotta Serve Somebody. It was his last commercial hit. He still puts out music. Uh, He's put out so many albums and songs, but this was his last real commercial hit. And this is the chorus to the song. You're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed. You're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord but you're going to have to serve somebody. Just an interesting piece of history. There was a guy alive when this song came out. His name was John Lennon. You may have heard of him. And John Lennon gave a public interview when this song came out. In the interview, the point of the interview was to mock Bob Dylan. Okay, I'm not setting Bob Dylan up as some great Christian hero. I'm not trying to do that. But Lennon mocked Dylan for incorporating his Christian faith, at least what he professed, into his songwriting. He said, you shouldn't do that. And this is a quote. He made fun of Bob Dylan for his, quote, simple, boring lyrics. Simple, boring lyrics. And I hope when I tell you that, that the hypocrisy is just dripping off the screen as you look at that picture. Because it's okay for Lennon to write songs like Imagine 
where you think about a world without religion, that's perfectly okay. And on this issue of simple, boring lyrics, let me just show you some of John's lyrics. Are you ready for this? I'm just going to read them to you for dramatic effect. You ready? Love, love, love. Love, love, love. Love, love, love. All you need is love. All you need is love. All you need is love. And this is where it gets good. Are you ready for this? You talk about creativity, man. Here it comes. Love is all you need. That's like the mantra for our society today. When we think about what is it that's going to make us happy, we believe that it's love. And we can spend all day long arguing about culture war issues and homosexuality and uh, all those issues that come along with that. And it's just, I know every day you turn on the news, you think, I didn't think it could get crazier, and it got crazier. I'm just telling you, at the root of all of those debates, there's some serious moral issues, there's theological issues, but at the root of all those debates is this idea that love is the thing that is really going to make us happy. You may say, I don't know if I've bought into that lie. I don't know if this is an issue for, you, for me. Let me just give you a few signs to think about in your own life, things that you can look for to say, maybe I've allowed love to become a little G-God in my life. Number one, capitulating to lust. Capitulating to lust. That can take place in the secrecy of your own mind. And knowing in what kind of company that we're in, I'll just say very carefully, that can also take place on your phone or your computer, especially when we're all connected to the internet and there's any sort of garbage available online that you could ever want, it's a major issue in our society. If you think that there are people in the church who aren't addicted to garbage online, you're crazy. If you think your kids and your grandkids are not being exposed to garbage online and yet they're connected to the internet, you're crazy. Garbage on the internet, and you know what I'm talking about, is a trillion, that's trillion with a T, trillion dollar industry in the United States of America alone. Trillion. And we've been told since the sexual revolution of the 60s, if you normalize it, and if you quit being so prude, and if you get over it, it's not that big of a deal. And instead of fixing our problem with lust, all it's done is fed our problem with lust. If this is an issue for you, then you've bought into the lie, at least one version of the lie, that love, in some form or fashion, will bring happiness into your life. It's a little g-god. Number two and three we'll mention together, obsessing about romance or believing another person will make you happy. If you obsess about romance or you believe another human being will make you happy, then love is a little G-God in your life that you need to deal with. This is the whole idea that you, you cannot be happy, you cannot be whole, you cannot be complete until you find your soulmate and get to be with them. I'm just going to be honest with you. From a biblical standpoint, you don't have a soulmate. You live on an earth with billions of sinful people. 
find one who fits the category of the person that God says you should marry, and that's your soulmate. That's about as compatible as you're going to be. But we have bought the lie of, just for one example, Jerry Maguire. And some of you don't remember Jerry Maguire. You didn't watch that movie. Some of you remember that movie. I'm not talking about the famous line of, show me the money. I'm talking about the famous line of, you complete me. Like, I can't be happy and content and everything that I want to be as a human unless I have you in my life. That underlies so much of what we argue about in our society today. And it's a lie. It's not true. It's absolutely not true that another human being can complete you. Think about the folly of that. For one thing, for one thing, we have gathered here together this morning and every Sunday, we do it every Sunday at the same time, to worship a man who was celibate all of his life. He was single, and there was nothing incomplete in him. He wasn't walking around just feeling like there was some void because he didn't have a significant other. You don't need that either to feel complete. On the other hand, you're looking to a human being, a finite human being, to fill a God-shaped hole in your heart. It will never work. Number four, complying with our, our culture's philosophy of dating. Complying with our culture's philosophy of dating. I know this is a, a tricky issue for people, a sticky issue. I know that people get upset about this on all sides of the debate. There's not just a couple of sides here. I'm not trying to suggest to you that you forego dating in your family and go with arranged marriages. I'm not saying courtship is the only way to go. I'm not saying it's inherently wicked to have a boyfriend or a girlfriend or to go on a date. I'm just saying in our society, in our culture at large, the predominant idea of dating is absolutely not a biblical approach to marriage, to relationships. It's not. The predominant idea says you can hook up with anybody at any time and there's no lasting consequence from that. That's a lie. That's a lie. Don't believe it. Our society is moving more and more in the direction of you can Snapchat anything you want, you can text anything you want, you can message anything you want, and there's no consequence for that. It's a lie. There is a consequence. You and I cannot just step, lock, step, step and barrel with everything our society says about dating and expect that this isn't going to be an issue for our life, that we're not going to come out on the other side and realize... I've made love a little G-God in my life. We will. The last idea is this. It just sort of summarizes all of it is accepting our culture's definition of love. The way people talk about love in our society is this blind, unseen force that when you least expect you, it just blindsides you and overtakes you. And once it does that, you have lost all control. Like you're at its mercy 100%. Whoever it tells you to love, you have to love them. However long it tells you to love them, well, that's how long you love them. If it goes away from you, well, there's nothing you can do about that. You fell out of love. You just move on and find somebody else. And that's not a biblical idea of love at all in any way, shape, or form. You look at all these signs and you say, man, our culture, our society, we live in a place that is so confused about this issue of love. And I just want to remind you, we're not the first people to be confused about it. In fact, the story that we're going to look at this morning from the book of Genesis, the very first book in the Bible, is a story of at least three people and really everyone else around them totally confused about this issue 
of love. Now, ultimately, I just want, to, I want you to be able to see the end game of what we're building to. We're ultimately building up, and we're going to look at a woman named Leah. But before we just jump in and talk about Leah, you really got to understand the backstory. So we're going to actually start off talking about a guy named Jacob, and then somebody named Rachel, and then eventually we're going to work our way to Leah. So in your Bible, this is what I want you to do first. I want you to flip back to Genesis 25. Last week we read about a guy named Abraham. He and his wife had a son named Isaac. And in Genesis 25, starting in verse 19, I just want you to read what the Bible tells us about Isaac and his family. Genesis 25, 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. Pay attention to this. The older shall serve the younger. Two kids. The older is going to serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called him Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau. That's he loved his older son Esau. Why? Because he ate of his game. But Rebekah, that's the mom, loved Jacob. I just want to make sure you see some of the dysfunction in this family. Okay? Get ready because there's a lot of dysfunction this morning. Isaac and his wife Rebekah, they want to have kids. She's barren. Prays to the Lord. She conceives. She has twins. They're wrestling within her. She's upset. She's asking God, like many pregnant women do, why is this happening to me? What is going on? And she goes to ask God about it, and God says to her, look, you've got two nations within you. There's brothers, and the older is going to serve the younger. He takes everything that their culture says and turns it up on its head. The older is not going to be the boss. He's not going to be in control. He's not going to call all the shots, but the older is going to serve the younger. Then the boys are born. And the book of Genesis tells us that Isaac, the father, try to get all these names straight this morning, Isaac, the father, loves the older son Esau. Why? In a loose paraphrase, because he's a man's man. He likes his hunting. He likes his food. They have something in common on that level, maybe. And he has trouble connecting with Jacob. 
Right out of the gate, you see, this is kind of going backwards to last week, but you see Isaac falling for this trap of allowing your child to become a little G-God in your life. He puts his son Esau right at the center of his life, and everything revolves around Esau. The world just spins around Esau. Esau hung the moon. Esau's the greatest. And Isaac just feeds into this. This was not good for Esau's character development. If you think you're helping your kids by putting them at the center of your life, you're wrong. Esau grows up to be temperamental and somebody who just flies off the handle easily. Somebody who makes rash decisions. How did he become like that? Well, his dad just sort of catered to his every whim growing up. Everything he wanted, he always got it. And he grew up thinking, everything I want, I should always get. On the other hand, you have Jacob. And the text is very restrained in just telling us he liked to dwell in tents. You can fill in your own paraphrase with what you think that means. But what we know is that Mama, Rebecca, took up for her son Jacob because he just sort of got the short end from his dad. So you've got a dad playing favorites with his older son Esau. And you've got Mom trying to overcompensate with younger brother Jacob. And then you've got two brothers who grow up hating each other. Okay? This is a recipe for disaster. You fast forward to chapter 27. We're just jumping forward a little ways. In chapter 27, you find these two brothers have grown up. Jacob and Esau have grown up. You find that Isaac is getting old. And it's time for Isaac to sort of pass down this family blessing. In this culture, there was one son who would be blessed. And culture said, you pass this blessing down and this double share of the inheritance, all this stuff, it goes to the older son. But you remember, God has already spoken to Isaac through Rebekah and said, the older is going to serve the younger. I don't want it to go the way culture wants it to go. I want it to go my way, God says. And Isaac, I'm just going to paraphrase and sort of summarize what happens here. He basically goes rogue and decides, I don't care what your plan is. I've never liked Jacob. Why would I bless Jacob? He's a tent dweller. I love Esau. And he sets up this plan where he's going to pass this blessing down to his older son. Well, this is where all these years of favoritism come into play. Rebecca hears about it and she decides, I better step in and help Jacob. She comes up with this plan. They put their heads together. There's a lot of lying. There's a lot of deception that hurt the family relationships for years and years to come. And in the end, before he even gets the chance to receive his father's blessing, Jacob sneaks in and swoops it, steals it away. Now just think about this scenario. This is one of those times where you read the story and you think, I'm not sure that Jacob really thought this out really well. He's a tent dweller. And he just stole from a master hunter who's temperamental and flies off the handle. And older brother Esau decides, I'm going to kill him. And this is not one of those like brothers fight type things and they say that. This is like really, the master hunter is about to set his crosshairs on the tent dweller and he's going to kill him. And when you're the tent dweller and the master hunter's got you in the crosshairs, there's only one thing for you to do. Run away as fast as you can. That's exactly what he does. He hightails it and he leaves. His relationship with his father would never be the same after this deception. That would never be forgotten. As he runs away, he never gets to see his mother again. His last memory of being with his mom 
is lying to his father, her husband, and stealing from his brother. And Esau didn't get over this for an awful long time. Look, you set these things up in your life and you think, if only I had this, if only I have that, if only this little G God, they always disappoint, they never deliver, and they always destroy. It doesn't matter if you're talking about kids, it doesn't matter if you're talking about love, it doesn't matter if you're talking about money, you fill in the blank with your little G God, it's not going to work out the way you think it's going to work out. So he hightails it, and he leaves. And there's only one bridge that he hasn't burned, and that bridge is named Laban. And we meet Laban in Genesis 29. Turn to Genesis 29. Laban is sort of like an uncle. He takes Jacob in. He puts him to work. And look what we read in Genesis 29, starting in verse 15 all the way to 20. Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now, Laban had two daughters. Now, let me just tell you, give you a little clue here. You're reading in this paragraph, it starts off on the level of a business transaction. And then immediately, before you can even get an answer to the question, you move into like family information. It's really not the place you expect to learn details about Laban. Maybe he could have included that earlier when we first met him. But he puts it here so that your brain goes off and you say, wait a minute, we're talking business. Why all of a sudden are we talking about kids? So you realize that Laban has an agenda. He's not just talking business. He's got a plan. This is part of the plan. He has two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak. I'm reading out of the ESV, and that's the the way they translate it. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. He loved her. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. Cue the music. And they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. Aww. (laughs) Two daughters. The older is Leah. She has weak eyes. Some translations say dim eyes. Translators really don't know what to make of it. Some say that maybe she had like a lazy eye. Some say that she was blind. She couldn't see very well. Some say that she was maybe cross-eyed. She just wasn't very attractive. You fill in the blank with whatever you want here, but it's not a positive characteristic from an outward perspective. It's sort of what she's known for. On the other hand, you have Rachel, and the text is very restrained in saying she is beautiful in form and appearance, meaning All the way around, she's a 10. Insert Jacob into the middle of this family, and it shouldn't surprise us that we read, he loves Rachel. And his plan is, I'm going to work for you for seven years if you'll let me marry that girl. Now, you may read that, and you may think, wow, he was getting a bargain. Or you may read that and think, what a total ripoff. But let me just tell you, in his culture, he's offering about four times the normal bride price. 
Right? You do the math and the wages and normal dowries. He's basically saying, look, whatever you would normally get for a good-looking lady, I'm going to give you four times whatever you would get on the open market, and I want to marry her. It makes sense if you think about it, right? That he would make a decision like this. Jacob would make a decision like this. Never in his life did he have the love of his father. Never had it. He has now lost the one woman who truly cares about him, that's his mother. He has zero relationship with his brother who he just schemed and lied to and stole from. And now he's living in a new place and he finds a good-looking woman and he says, you're the one that's going to make me happy. You're the one that's going to complete me. You're the one that's going to fill this void in my life. And he pops off and he says, I'll give you four times the normal bride price. I think he's blinded by his idolatry. I think he's making foolish decisions here. And I say that if you look at verse 19 and you listen very carefully to what Laban says, he never actually says it's a deal. They don't ever, you know, shake on it or write it in a contract or form some sort of covenant. However they would have done it in that day, none of that happens. Laban listens to the plan and he says, well, it would be better for me to give her to you than anyone else. Why don't you hang around a while? Just hang around. And Jacob hears what he wants to hear. Laban never said you can have her. He just said, well, you know, I guess I could do worse. Hang around. And the days over those years just seemed to go by in a moment because he was so in love with her. Because he was so convinced that this woman would fill up what was lacking in his life. Then comes the wedding. And this is one of those stories that I always like to read in children's Bibles. Because I just want to see, how are you going to tell this story to children? What are you going to do with this? So this is where the con man gets conned, and Laban pulls the old switcheroo on him, right? And we read it, and we, we insert our experience of a wedding, and we think, how in the world could you ever fall for that? But we realize, well, maybe the whole thing happened in the evening, and it was dark, and they don't have electricity, and you say, well, maybe in this culture, it's, it's probable that she would have been veiled before the ceremony, and so... You know, she was veiled and sort of covered up. And I'll just be honest with you. I'm kind of reading between the lines, so you take this lightly. Jacob is not a nice dude at this point in his life. And I don't think there's any reason to think that he wasn't drunk at the wedding. They're celebrating. They're having a good time. He's had a little bit too much to drink. It's dark. She's veiled. They go through through with the whole deal. He wakes up the next morning. Eyes blurry like when you wake up, you know, trying to focus head pounding maybe from the night before and he rolls over and who does he see? Dim eyes. (laughs) He's irate. I mean, can you imagine? Totally outraged, furious. And he goes to Laban and what does Laban say? Well, 
you know, that's just not the way we do things around here. I don't know how you do them where you're from, but that's, that's not how we do them around here. You know, maybe we can work something out. And he agrees to work another seven years just to have this woman. Now he's paying eight times the normal bride price. He's acting like an idolater, or you could say he's acting like an addict. He's doing whatever it takes to get the one thing that he's convinced himself that he has to have to be happy in life. And he says, whatever, I'll work however long I need to work. He wants this woman. All of that sort of brings us up to Leah. Think about Leah with me just for a second. Leah grows up and her dad is Laban. And Laban has a problem. Laban has a daughter that he can't get rid of. He's not painted as a a man of character or a, a man of faith. He's just, Laban's a jerk. He's got this daughter, and from his perspective, he can't get rid of her. He has four choices, okay? Choice number one, he can keep her, and he can just take care of Leah his whole life. But that's gonna cost him. Choice number two, he could find somebody that maybe would just take her for free. Like, I'll, I'll cancel the bride price. Maybe you'll just take her. Next choice is maybe he says, I guess I could pay someone to take her. As long as what I'm paying is less than what I'm going to shell out over her lifetime of taking care, care of her, maybe I can still come out ahead some ways. Or, option four, enter Jacob into the scene, find a love-sick punk that I can pull one over on. Find somebody who is so blinded with love for Rachel that I can pull this switch on him. I think that's exactly why in chapter 29 you enter into this conversation about, hey, what are your wages going to be? Laban knows exactly what he's going to do. He knows Jacob wants his daughter, Rachel, and he's got the whole thing worked out. And that's why the author of Genesis comes in with this detail and says, oh, by the way, he's got two daughters, one not very good looking, one really, really good looking, and the whole story unfolds from there. He's given you a clue to say Laban has planned this all the way from the beginning. So that means Leah has grown up with this understanding that her father doesn't want her. She's also grown up in Rachel's shadow all of her life. She's the beautiful one in form and appearance, right? If you remember watching the Brady Bunch in former years, or I remember watching it on reruns, getting ready for school, this wasn't Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. This was Rachel, Rachel, Rachel. It's always Rachel. She's the the lead cheerleader. She's the one that gets asked to the dance. She's the one that gets all the attention. It's always Rachel. So she's got a dad who doesn't want her. She's got a sister who totally overshadows her. And now she finds herself with a husband who doesn't want her. Leah's got this hole in her heart. God-shaped. Her dad didn't fill it. Relationship with her family, maybe her sister didn't fill it. And she is trying her hardest, as you read this text, to fill it with Jacob. She's trying to fill it with her husband. And I just want you to look in the text. Look at Genesis 29, starting in verse 31, and we're going to go to 34. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name 
Reuben, and this is why she called him Reuben, because she was thinking, she said, because the Lord has looked on my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Now I get love from my husband because I've given him a son. That's what she's looking for. The story goes on. She conceived again and bore a son, and she said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. She's moved from hoping that Jacob would now love her to just a point of anger and bitterness, and all she can think about is, everyone hates me. Laban hates me. My sister hates me. My husband hates me. Everyone hates me. What do I get in return? A kid. And the story goes on. She conceived again, and she bore a son. She said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he's given me this son also. She called his name Simeon. Verse 34, again she conceived, she bore a son, and she said, now, this time, my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And as you read about Leah having these children, having these sons, it's so easy to just read through it and to say, okay, there you got uh, Simeon and there you got Reuben and there you got Levi and you're just checking off the 12 that you know are coming in Jacob's family. But I hope you can hear the desperation in her voice as she names these children. Everything on her mind and everything on her heart is, I just want my husband to love me. That's the one thing I need. Everyone hates me. Maybe now that I've given him three sons, he'll be attached to me. She set up this idea of love as a little G God in her life. And here's the tragedy. You now have a marriage of three people, which is a total train wreck. And we know at least two of them have set up love as a little G God in their life. You have Jacob who can't get his eyes off this woman who is beautiful in form and appearance, thinking this is the person that's going to complete me. I'll do anything. Four times the bride price, done. Eight times the bride price, whatever it takes, I want her. He's got to have her. Over here you got Leah. and She's sort of on one, on one side of things, the unwitting pawn, the victim in all of this, we would agree. But she's also got this hope, maybe one more kid and he'll love me. Maybe one more kid and I won't be hated. Maybe one more kid and, and Jacob will finally love me looking for her peace and her identity and her joy in something that she thought Jacob could give her. When you read this story, you get to this point, you're probably tempted to say, time out. Who's the hero in the story here? Because this pretty much looks like an episode of Jerry Springer or Maury Povich with DNA tests and arguments and yelling and screaming. Like, this is crazy land. Who am I supposed to look up to here? And the answer, shortly, is no one here. There's no hero in this story, right? There is no hero in this story. It's not Abraham. It's not Isaac. It's not Jacob. It's not Rachel. It's not Leah. There is only one hero in the Bible, and his name is Jesus. And if you're looking for him in Genesis 25 or 27 or 29, you're just going to come away scratching your head saying, I don't know who I'm supposed to emulate here because these people all seem like crazy people. They are all crazy people. They're not the hero. 
Jesus is the hero, and we'll come back to him in just a minute. Some of you read the story, and you're not so much caught up with who the hero is. Some of you read the story, and you see Jacob chasing this little G-God of love, and you see Leah chasing it in an entirely different way. And you look at yourself, and you think about the signs we've talked about, and you say, you know what? This is something that's an issue for me. I've set my, my heart on the idea that another person or a spouse or someone else will complete me. You have a couple of options if that's you, if you're acknowledging that it's you. One is you can just sort of blame yourself and turn inward and navel gaze and throw a big pity party about it, beat yourself up about it. That doesn't get you anywhere. Same thing you could do is you could blame other people. So this would be like if you're not married and you've just been looking for all these different people who you hope are going to complete you, you could just turn outward and say, well, I just keep finding the wrong ones. I just need to find the right one who's going to complete me. You could just sort of get mad at love in general and be bitter about everything and give up on it all. Or you could admit your idolatry to God and turn to God. And i got to tell you, in the story that we're reading, we haven't got there yet. We stopped in verse 34, but if you keep going one more verse, you realize Leah is the only person who eventually got there. She's the only person who eventually had the light bulb go off where she realized, Jacob's not going to make me happy. The love of my father is not going to complete me. And she finally realizes that that's only found in God. So let's end with this. There's a quote from C.S. Lewis I'll share with you as we transition to application. C.S. Lewis said, If I find myself with a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. That's sort of Leah at the end of her rope, looking to her father, looking to her husband, looking everywhere for this sort of satisfaction. She can't find it anywhere. Well, maybe it's not meant to be found here. It's meant to be found elsewhere. What is God teaching us through Leah? Just a few thoughts. Number one, love makes a terrible God. Your version of this little G God may be romance. Your version of this little G God may be on Snapchat. Your version of this little G God may be on a computer screen. Your version of this little G-God may be an idea in your head that maybe is a lot more like Leah and it's white picket fence and perfect family and perfect everything and just everyone lives happily ever after. But if you're looking to another person to make you happy, you're looking in the wrong place. Love makes a terrible God. Secondly, worship should be directed to God alone. Not to another person, not to a spouse, not to a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a husband or a wife, but only to God. This is where verse 35 comes in. We left off in 34. Look what she says in 35. She conceived again, and she bore a son, and she said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. And then she ceased bearing. Child one, maybe my husband will love me. Child two, Everyone hates me, and my life is terrible. Child three, maybe now I will finally be attached to my husband. Child four, she's given up on those pipe dreams. She's seeing things clearly, and she says, you know what? Worship belongs to God alone. 
Jacob can't make me happy. Only God can make me happy. Number three, God loves the unloved. Thank God for that. He loves the unloved. He loves Jacob, who is a total jerk in this story. From beginning to end of what we've read, this guy is a sleazeball. And God loves this guy. And he's eventually going to get hold of his life and change him and use him. And we're going to come back to that later in our series. He also loves Leah. No one else on earth loves her, values her, cares about her, and God loves her. And that leads us to the last idea. Jesus alone makes sense of this story. Jesus alone makes sense of this story. Leah has this fourth son. She says, this time I will praise the Lord. And what does she name him? She names him Judah. Judah. And if you keep reading this story that begins in Genesis and goes all the way up through the New Testament, you realize Judah had kids and they had kids and they had kids. And it's through Judah's line that eventually a baby is born in Bethlehem in a barn in obscurity and his parents name him Jesus. That means Leah, the person that no one cared about and no one valued and no one wanted, had the privilege and the honor of being the great, 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 great grandma of the Messiah. And if you think about it, Leah and Jesus had an awful lot in common. An awful lot in common. They both knew what it was like to be rejected by your family. They both experienced that. They both knew what it was like to be overlooked and misunderstood. The Old Testament tells us, Isaiah 53, that there was no beauty. There would be no beauty in the Messiah that we would be attracted to him. Leah could empathize with that. She could relate to that. John 1.11 says that Jesus came to his own people and his own people rejected him. Leah experienced that. The Bible even says that at the end of his life, Jesus of Nazareth was abandoned by his father. And I'm not talking about Joseph. I'm talking about his heavenly father. And you think about his last words on the cross where he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You listen to Jesus ask that question. He's quoting the book of Psalms. And you say, why would a father... God the Father abandoned His Son on the cross. Why would that happen? And the answer is simple. Because God loved unlovable people like me and you, He sent Jesus to die on the cross, to take our death, to take our punishment, to drink this cup of God's wrath all the way to the end so that people like you and me who are not lovable at all could experience God's love and His grace. And in a much greater way than Leah ever imagined or experienced, Jesus understood what it was like to be abandoned by His Father. And He experienced that so that we could know life, so that we could be brought into God's family. Jesus makes sense of this story when you say, what in the world is going on in the life of Jacob and Rachel and Leah and all of these kids, it's such a mess. God is working through sinful people to bring a Messiah who will die for sinful people and to give them life. 
And from Genesis all the way through the stories of Jesus, the Bible is hammering home this truth, trying to get our attention. You don't just need the love of another person. Love is not all that you need. Left to itself, love will always disappoint you. It will not be able to deliver you in the end, and it will always be a disappointment. What you need is Jesus. He's enough, and he's all that you need. I'd like you to bow, and I'm going to pray for us. Father, forgive us when we look to other people for joy, for purpose, for fulfillment. Father, we're amazed that in your grace and your mercy you sent Jesus to die for us and to give us all that we need for life and godliness and the hope of eternity with you. Father, we believe that Jesus paid all of it. That when he said it is finished, he meant it. Father, and our hope is not in other human beings and the ability of a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a a digital image or a husband or a wife to fulfill us, but our hope is in Jesus. Father, I pray for those in the room who may struggle with this particular little G God. I pray that you would convict hearts. I pray that you would draw people to Christ. I pray that you would open eyes to see the truth. Father, we pray that you would save us from ourselves and that you would save us from our our idols, our little G-gods. Father, be honored as we sing about Jesus and the price that he paid for our forgiveness and for our life. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.